Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Laura Sestido. She is the Administrative Director of Care Coordination at Cardinal McCluskey Community Services. Cardinal McCluskey Community Services, CMCS, is a nonprofit adult, child, and family services organization. It is based in one of the poorest areas of New York City with one of the highest rates of child welfare involvement. Among the many services CMCS offers is foster care. And this is an area of expertise for you, Laura, and I welcome you. Thank Hi. you. Good evening. Hi. And you have a degree in abnormal psychology with a minor in early childhood development and disorders and a master's in multidisciplinary human services with a specialization in nonprofit leadership and management. And your involvement with child welfare goes back many years and is not restricted to your professional life. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that. Child welfare involvement was not part of my life prior to coming to this job. I was exposed to a lot of early childhood development issues with my own family. I had three sons, each one of them had some sort of developmental learning or neurological disorder. Uh, so I had to learn a lot about what was happening for them, what their needs would be, how to intervene, how to support them. And in doing so, I became very interested in the field of child development. So that's when I went back to finish school and entered into the child welfare arena as a second career. And there was a lot of need in child welfare. And I felt that I wanted to do something important with my time and my life. And what is more important than helping children, right? Yeah. So. And then when you started, you started in foster care. Yeah, I started as the one of the frontline foster care case planners, whose role is to uh, sort of look after, make sure the children's needs are being met while they're in foster care, as well as helping the biological family attain the goals that they needed to attain in order for reunification. Those goals are set by the courts. They'll determine what the family needs to accomplish prior to considering a you know, trial discharge or reunification of the family. So it's the case planner's role to connect them to court-mandated services, monitor their progress during those services, report back to court on how things are going. So it's a very difficult role to be in because, you know, you're part of the system that separated the family in the first place. Often 
biological families don't necessarily agree with why their children might have been removed. You're really walking a fine line. You have to develop good relationships with the families in order to be able to be very supportive of them, but yet you have to hold them accountable at the same time. And that can be a difficult role. I can imagine there is quite a level of stress involved. I'm curious, you know, we hear about a child is in foster care. What are reasons why a child would enter the foster care system? Because you mentioned that families are not always in agreement with that. Who decides? You know, anybody can make a call to the state central registry to report suspected abuse or neglect. You don't have to have confirmation that it exists or it's happening, but if you suspect it, then it can be an anonymous call to the state central registry. It could be an educator who suspects there being some neglect or abuse in the home making the call, a healthcare provider when a child shows up in the emergency room, or if there is some therapy or social worker involved and they suspect there is some abuse or neglect happening, they can also notify the state central registry. Um, that call is then, you know, routed to in here in New York City, it is the Administration for Child Services and other areas. It's considered the Department of Social Services. And they have a responsibility to go out and investigate the allegation within 24 hours, usually less, depending on the seriousness of the allegation. So some people have ACS knocking on their door in the middle of the night because their neighbor made a call, maybe because they overheard some arguing or fighting in the household. That could be one thing. Sometimes, unfortunately, the system is weaponized, especially if it's a situation where a child has been removed from a home and is in a foster home and the biological family can make allegations against the foster family. It can get very, very messy like that. But yeah, typically there's a report and it's followed up on. Not every report results in a child being removed from the household, clearly. You know, they, they try to substantiate it. But if there seems to be a real impending safety problem upon that initial investigation, then the case planner or the CPS worker can go to court and ask to have the child remanded right away. And then I'm wondering, once it's determined there is a safety risk and the child should be removed, how is it decided if the child goes to a foster home or are there group homes available? Is there an age limit? The initial exploration will be another family member. Is there another family member that can be an emergency caretaker for this child? If it's going to be long-term, would that caretaker agree to becoming the child's foster parent? We're always looking for kinship connections initially. The second round, if we didn't identify someone in the family that was had the means to take care of the child, meaning they have to have the amount, the correct amount of space, you know, there's a lot of regulations because technically the child is in care with the organization. There are a lot of rules and regulations around what the construct of a foster home must look like. But if there are no family members able or willing to support the child or take care of the child, then the next level would be 
a foster home. Any group home setting would probably be reserved for a higher level of care, if there's a need for a higher level of care, or some youth unfortunately exhaust the foster homes from an organization. They're just not being successful. They have multiple placements, and that is re-traumatizing every time. If there's significant behavior problem or serious emotional disturbance, we might go to a therapeutic family foster home where the caregivers uh, have a, a, another level of training, understanding and obligation around caring for the child. Now, the focus of child welfare is in prevention there will be every effort made to not break that family apart. But preventive services are voluntary services. So the family has to be willing to engage in those services to avoid that separation. Then there would be a preventive worker that comes in and tries to help connect the family to the resources they need, um, the services they need, and then to help support the primary caregiver. However, if those preventive services aren't in time or you know effective and the decision to remove the children from the uh, biological family's home is made then they it can be anywhere from until the next court date the judge may decide that they should be returned or it can be several years later depending upon how the course of the case progresses it's like a trial it's like a a court proceeding fact-finding case, you know, whether there's a finding of neglect or abuse, then there's a process involved in moving towards reunification, hopefully. If that is unsuccessful, then the judge might decide to, you know, move towards terminating a parental rights and um, freeing the child for adoption. So I'm hearing that the first attempt is to keep the child or children in the family, so extended relatives, if that's not possible, maybe foster homes. Now, I am wondering the benefit. Of course, the child has to be removed from the family, so the benefit is to live with somebody else. Is there a risk involved in not living with relatives but coming to foster homes where there are strangers, maybe other foster children? Yeah, so, you know, we view every separation or every removal as trauma. We know that despite what might have been taking place in the household, it's still traumatic for a child to be separated from their family. So right off the bat, they've already had some adverse experiences because of why we were involved in the first place. And here, the separation is also considered another adverse experience. So we're very aware of the risk and impact that comes along with removing a child. So the only reason why you'd make that is if it, for that safety reason, right? You know, every case is different. There are factors that affect every single case. Sometimes the child is placed in a home with multiple foster children, multiple needs that are going on within the household. And if they can't get along really well, that might result in another placement. So every time they're moved from one house to another house, a change in placement is destabilizing. It's very, very difficult. 
the benefit is that now that you're, you're in foster care, there are social workers around that are available to try to connect you and help remediate issues around things like resources, um, housing stability, uh, educational neglect or, or delays. You know, there's a lot of resources that they can be connected to. But just like any other intervention, they have to be ready, willing, and accepting of it, right? Right. Um, so risks involved are going into a household where the expectations are uh, potentially higher than what you can meet. There's incongruous uh, approach to what the expectations are for this child. Now we're talking about times when you have a child who has not received the type of care, nurturing, um, love, and um, education that a typical child of, say, the age of six has received. And then they are put into this foreign environment and there's an expectation that they behave a certain way, whereas their whole life prior to that point never prepared them to be able to behave the way that the caregiver may be expecting. We do our best to try to educate our foster parents about what to expect and what neglect and years of neglect looks like or the impact of neglect um, and how that uh, manifests itself in behavior problems. What I heard from you was also children can move from foster home to foster home. And I'm wondering yeah. how common is that? And also, does it make a difference how old the child is when it enters foster care? Meaning, I guess it can go both ways. If the child is already older, might have established some bonds before and maybe had some normal development, which can also be a disadvantage because if the situation was abusive and there was neglect, then maybe it's not so good that the child waited so long to come into foster care. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Early intervention is always the best approach in any of these types of situations. Um, so the longer a child has been exposed to, you know, whether it be domestic violence, um, a caregiver with serious mental health issues, substance use disorders, just where there's been neglect for long periods of time, of course, it's going to be a lot harder to help heal that for older children than it would be for a younger child. So absolutely, we see the best results come from youth that we can engage around six, seven, eight, nine years old. Once they start getting to 12, 13, and 14, because of what normally happens during development, where they are pushing away from adults as is, right? That's a, a, a normal thing. We can tend to lose them during those years, right? So especially if they are having trouble functioning in a foster home and they are moved regularly, it just sort of re-injures the, I'm not worthy, I'm neglected or abandoned, you know? So that can really, start to build up the walls around the youth and then they find their family in the community in the streets and that can be very dangerous 
So, yeah, so when, I guess what we usually say teenage behavior, but here it's exacerbated because they don't have that supportive family that they are connected to. So what do you see them struggling with? And you mentioned on the streets, there might be gangs, there might be violence. Are they at risk of committing a crime and entering the juvenile justice system? If you kind of take that back a little bit though, if you think about someone who's been exposed to a lot of trauma, there's that response of fight or flight. That is a basic human response to threats in the environment. When you're constantly exposed to threats in your environment, then you are constantly in a hyper-aroused state of awareness around either perceived or real threats in your environment. So how you respond to that then can exacerbate your situation or can improve it depending upon your response. So when we have children or adolescents that have been exposed to a lot of trauma who have really difficulty sitting in the classroom and, and, and learning because they perceive threats in their environment and they react and respond to that. And that often causes disruption in the classroom, uh, conflict amongst other students. You know, I've been called to school for kids who started fighting with a classmate because of the way they looked at them, right? There's that heightened sense of threat level, whether it's real or not, that's what they're perceiving. And then that state of mind being in that fight or flight state of mind only allows you to focus on the threat and doesn't allow you to learn new skills or be receptive to the information that the teacher's trying to teach. There has to be this feeling of safety in order for the child, caregiver, anybody to make progress towards healing. So when you have that dynamic happening either with a child in a foster home or in the community, it's very difficult. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of kids going AWOL, leaving the home without permission out into the streets. And then they'll find other like-minded youth with some similar experiences. And it comes with this sort of, I don't care kind of perspective. You know, there's a, you can't do anything to hurt me. I've already been hurt kind of way of thinking that really does now progress toward things like small petty crime in the community, which can then lead to more, you know, um, serious crimes or connection to gangs, drugs, and or trafficking. Trafficking. Yeah, it's very dangerous. Yeah. And I'm also thinking school can be a refuge for some children because they could really sink their teeth into education but what you're describing is really not possible for them to do that if they have such traumatic experiences that they can't really function so now with that lack of education what is left for them Mm. in terms of finding a job and becoming independent Exactly. (laughs) It's a struggle. (laughs) But, you know, I don't want to say that there aren't families that really do get it together and 
and improve and get reunited and kids do stay focused on education and go on to college despite the fact that it's a much smaller percentage than you would find in a different socioeconomic status. So I don't want to say that every child that comes into foster care has this kind of experience. Unfortunately, it's, it's too often. And then what will happen is eventually they will age out of foster care, not having been adopted, and then really leave the system with no strong foundation underneath them, and then have to be reliant on government supports and entitlements, and then it has a tendency to uh, repeat itself. So what I'm hearing, and this is something I wasn't aware of before, so when we talk about, all right, so now there are children in foster care and their attempt is made to reunite with the family, and that happens versus the ones that are not reunited. And for, for them, the best route is adoption, because if they age out of the foster care system, they really don't have any family or that, you know, that personal bonding support system. Right. So, and that doesn't um, happen if you're constantly moving from one foster care placement to another. So that's one of the greatest risk factors that I see is that constant changing, you know, moving from disruptive behavior, moving from one home to another, potentially going into a residential uh, treatment facility, which is even more damaging, I think, in some ways to a youth's development, right? You're in a facility now and you're being told how to think, where to go, what to do, what to say on a, on a strict schedule. <laughs> you don't have that normal opportunity to develop socially. So if that's the track that a child is on, it is very, very difficult to get them off of that track. The state of New York has made a lot of progress in developing these preventive programs or these wraparound support programs to try to avoid that. But you know, sometimes no matter how many services you put in place or how much effort you make, uh, that youth has to be willing and ready and open to making the change. And sometimes our expectation of what the change should look like is foreign to them. They may not have any experience with what we uh, understand to be some of the better determinants of health. I remember when I first got involved, I assumed every family wanted to move out of the Bronx, right? Like that was an assumption I made on my part, but that wasn't the truth. This is their home. This is their community. The goal is not to move away from their family and community. I had to learn to make sure that I was engaging the family with regard to what they saw as how they would like their life to look. And a lot of it was, I want my child to be um, successful in school. You know, there's a lot of families that hold a high regard for education. The education opportunities in this particular area are very varied. There's been some help from charter schooling and providing more options for families when it comes to school. But if you don't have a strong advocate helping you navigate that, whether it's your biological family or even your foster parent, then it's harder to get anything out of it. Failing in school is another risk 
right? We, we know that kids who come into foster care don't do as well in school as, as your average child. And that's, again, another risk factor. I've seen, you know, 15-year-olds in the eighth grade still. And at some point, they're not going to be able to make up that loss or that just seems too daunting for them. And now they have no education, really no skill set, and it's a perpetual participation in the system. Listening to you, I'm also thinking when you mention maybe you expected people to move out of a neighborhood. And if I remember that your organization is situated in a neighborhood where there is a lot of poverty. So what is also the challenge for the families that end up having their kids taken away? Is there is poverty an issue? What is their educational level like? What's mm-hmm. their trauma like? Are they, you know, what are their language skills like? Those are all considerations and all factors that have a role in how successful they can be. I think one of the greatest um, challenges are when caregivers have mental health issues that they are not managing well, or in some cases, some cognitive delays that are in existence. And now that could be part of the reason why they had so much trouble providing for their family or meeting the needs of a child. And there are challenges that come along with helping a family recognize that, helping them to participate and and connect to services that can improve that. If that's the situation, the judge could order that a family member either participates in therapy, psychological evaluation, or even um, drug treatment, if that's the case, um, uh, domestic violence, classes and avoidance and and there's a lot of specific resources out there um, that we try to connect them to in order to move beyond the child welfare involvement but there's a lot of obstacles on that path for everybody. I would imagine there are probably limits for you like if you are thinking about the welfare of the child and finding support services for the families, you cannot really control all of that. I mean, they have to probably accept it. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, well, is there something else that could be done? I'm thinking especially about poverty. You're not going to change the poverty level in Mm. an area. So there might be other changes necessary that have to come from other other, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I lived in the Bronx as a child, you know, a middle-class white neighborhood. I lived in Westchester County. And then I I had a, a life before I even got involved in um, child welfare. And when I first went down to the Bronx and started working in the community, one of my first thoughts was that nobody's doing anything to try to change this, right? That is static. I feel like this this country has the resources to try to change that situation, but I saw no real effort. I see an effort just to give uh, the community members what they need to just survive and really more than that, why there aren't more opportunities and better educational options in the in the community 
there's no reason why that that couldn't be different. Although people do recognize it, but it's um, organizations such as ours or Administration for Children's Services that are trying to develop ways to make those improvements. Um, some of the major health organizations like um, Montefiore is based out of the Bronx and they have some really good early childhood intervention programs, including some that focus on that initial mother-child bonding and attachment piece. And that is so critical. And if that's lost, that's lost forever. You know what I mean? I think my experience has been that for children who did not have a healthy bonding um, or attachment in their first year of life, they are the hardest to help heal. So it sounds like that parents would need some parenting classes mm -hmm. because parents maybe are dealing with their own trauma and yes. not really able to focus on their children in the way they should be. But something else I'm thinking of, and that has to do with the times we're living in now. We are in the, I'm not sure we're in the middle, at the end, somewhere in this pandemic. And I think this pandemic has brought issues like that closer to the surface, mm -hmm. or maybe it has brought it out for some people because people who lived in it knew what the problem was but who was listening and i'm wondering do you think we are listening better to people now who show us these signals that they need help are we going to change our approach to me that would involve how do i look at a person do I believe that a person has the responsibility to fix it all for themselves or do mm. I believe that they deserve the help no matter what? Yeah, that's, you know, I would say that there are improvements and progress being made in very slow, small increments. You know, understanding the impact of trauma is sort of now part of like best practice when working with youth who are in child welfare. But that's fairly recent. Understanding how adverse um, childhood experiences, what that impact has on a child's long-term development as well as long-term health outcomes are. These are fairly new concepts, maybe not new concepts in the world of psychology, but certainly fairly new concepts down in the hood, <laughs> you know, and how we're using these advances and this information to help support children and families. Again, it comes down to basic needs. You have to have your your basic needs met before you can move on to, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You have to be able to feel safe. You have to be able to have your, your basic needs met by food with um, shelter and, and love and human interaction and touch. And then once those needs are met, we can move on to, you know, the more social, emotional and psychological needs that need to be met. Uh, and then move on to hopefully that self-determination um, that we're trying to help people achieve. You mentioned there have been changes made and you see some areas that you feel there should be more changes coming. Now, what is your wish and what do you think can be accomplished in the next five years? What would be realistic? What could be changed to a more positive outcome? 
I'm a big believer in early intervention. That is my go-to usually, my go-to response. Early intervention with regard to when a mother gives birth in the hospital, are we making sure that they are discharging to safe environments? Are we making sure that they're connected to, you know, the resources that they need so that this child's basic needs can be met? And then sort of developing some programming along those lines. But bigger sweeping change I would like to see in the educational systems throughout New York and throughout the country, I think. And then access to good health care, um, access to good nutritious food. When I first went down to 149th Street, you know, within a seven block area, there's probably about four or five McDonald's and Burger Kings, but it was a struggle for me to find a place where I could get a healthy salad. Those are things that the community um, representatives need to be doing a better job of. I was down during the Bloomberg administration and now the de Blasio administration and talk about one extreme to the other. With regard to you know, the Bloomberg administration, it was a lot of high level of policing, the broken window approach to crime. I had youth that I was working with that would wind up spending the weekend in central booking in Manhattan because they jumped a turnstile and had maybe a little bit of marijuana on them, right? So they all these young kids wound up getting involved in the criminal justice system and now they all had records and it was it was like a snowballing effect. As that happened, their opportunities in life got less and less. Now what's happening on the other end of it is there's a pullback from policing and there's a lot more unmet need in the community. You have a lot of openly using drug addicts right on the streets. You have a lot more people with mental health challenges walking along the street and in some cases really um, harassing other citizens and then really no response to that. Somewhere in the middle, I'm assuming, <laughs> is the right balance. Every administration is different and funding is a big issue as well. Yeah, it sounds to me like it's a question of funding, but like you mentioned before, there is money in this country. Mm. So maybe it's a really a bigger issue of how do I perceive people in need, right? Because if you say, well, with policing, they ended up in the criminal justice system. So now we stop the policing, but we add nothing else. So now they're not ending up in the criminal justice system as easily, but they're still drug addicts, homeless. So mm -hmm. it seems like, well, we have to understand that people need help and deserve help. Mm -hmm. And we have to offer it. They are not going to pull themselves out on their own. Yeah. They can't. There is too much trauma in dysfunction. Yeah. In there's a lot of, there's still so much stigma attached to having a mental health disorder or being impoverished. So as long as that continues and exists, it creates barriers. So it sounds like there are some things agencies can do and some things that have to happen on a higher political level. Absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and then I'm also thinking there is also the regular person who says, well, I didn't know these issues about the foster care system. What is my role? How can I support this? And I'm wondering if there is a way that people can donate to organizations for foster children. 
Yeah, absolutely. And right now we're doing our, you know, annual Christmas toy drive and we're, we're really struggling because most of the organizations that would do it and funnel the um, gifts and things to us are not, are no longer doing it. You know, all of these uh, volunteer foster care agencies run a very tight budget. They are a nonprofit. If we can break even with regard to our reimbursements for services and the costs of, of doing it, we're happy. But that doesn't always happen. So we have to supplement what we receive from the city and the state with donations. So yes, you can go to the Cardinal McCloskey Community Services website and donate right there. You know, make it a regular thing if you can. Thank you for this conversation. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. I hope that people will get a different view on foster care and maybe find also a way to support children. Thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you for um, having me. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Brabaman and original music by Max Elias.